Good day, ladies and gentlemen. So glad you are here as we are thinking through God's word together. Good to see all of you who are online. Child of Elohim says she saw my name or heard my name brought up in a debate. It says I'm famous. Well, I don't know about that. I uh, don't really care about that. However, uh, I do care if they brought my name up and quoted me accurately. <laughs> Rob says, like your son's song choices. Yeah, he's, he's got a lot of talent, doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> Y'all can look at Dale's quote. That's great. All right. Um, so as we get into this next section today uh, of Romans 8, I want to just prepare us with this thought. I think we we don't realize just how radical and new the concept of resurrection was in the first century. And I say that because, you know, when so often when Christians talk about uh, dying and what happens after death, we talk about going to heaven. And that seems to be the goal. And, and there's a, a pessimistic perspective that, you know, we're just hanging on, this world is going to hell in a handbasket, and everything's crashing down. And of course, dispensationalism uh, from the mid-19th century really spurred this on, and Jesus coming back any minute until then, it's all going to burn uh, quickly, and, and so on and so on. And we get this pessimistic and just want to hang on and get to, um, get to heaven. And then we have this vision of heaven of we're all going to be floating in clouds, playing harps, singing, and we call it worship because we've now identified worship with singing, and we're just going to worship forever. And uh, it it sort of sounds like for some people, uh, we're going to literally sit around or float around and sing forever and all that kind of thing. That's not what the Bible describes. We're actually going to end up in the new earth, and I think, though some would disagree biblically, I think it's this earth, this earth glorified. And I hope to show you that from our text today. And we don't get much information in the scripture about what happens to a person when we die. It's, we get, we get much more about resurrection and life on this earth. And we don't get a lot of that either, but we get more than what happens when we die. So, for the first century hearers, for the Greeks and for the Jews, resurrection, bodily resurrection, coming back to life on earth was a very uh, rare concept. I've said this before, you read through the Old Testament and there is, there is scant evidence of a perspective of life after death. There's very little in the Old Testament. The hope certainly was not put forth in most cases for something after death. Well, that's what Paul is referring to repeatedly through Romans here. So let me, let me take you back to a section we looked at earlier and, and then catch up to what he's talking about today. Ah, 
hope there's going to be coffee in the next age. So Romans 5.1 says, having been declared righteous then. So he's been talking about justification. You're declared righteous by faith. We have peace toward God through our Lord Jesus, Messiah. And in chapter 8, we saw him talk about peace, and we'll see more of that later in chapter 8. So we have peace. Through whom, through the Lord Jesus, we also have the access by faith into this grace in which we have stood, and we boast on the hope of the glory of God. Now, we discussed this in chapter 5. In chapter 3, he says, all have sinned and fallen short or lack the glory of God. And now in Christ, we hope in the glory of God. In fact, we boast on the hope of the glory of God. So we missed it, but now we hope for it. And we talked, when we were looking at this, it seems to have something to do with um, overcoming sin, because chapter 3 says, all sinned and fall short or lack the glory of God, and now we have the hope of the glory of God. So there's a hope, there's something we're waiting for that has to do with sin and overcoming sin. But is there more to it? Yep, I think so. Not only so, but we also boast in the tribulations, knowing that the tribulation works endurance and endurance experience or proven character. And the experience produces hope. And the hope does not make us shamed because the love of God has been poured forth in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So there he's talking about how when we endure tribulations and we do it repeatedly, then we prove that we really do belong to him. And that gives us hope. As we endure, that hope shows us that the love of God really has been poured forth in our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit. So when you endure over time, endure tribulations, that is evidence that God has given you his spirit and that he loves you. And then he describes that we know God loves us because even when we were ungodly, he died for us. We are declared righteous, so we will be saved from his wrath. We were enemies. Now we've been reconciled and will be saved in his life. And we talked about saved from what? Saved from death. Not saved from experiencing death, but saved out of death, resurrection. And then he launches into this uh, whole business about how death entered. It de death entered the world through one man's sin, through Adam's sin, and it spread to all men because we all sinned when Adam sinned. His sin was our sin. He talks about the law, and he goes through the rest of chapter 5, describing the contrast between what Jesus provides or the results of being in Christ and the results of being in Adam. And then chapter 6, he gets into that we have joined to Christ through baptism 
and we died to the realm of sin, and we've been raised to newness of life. Then in chapter 7, he gets into the Jewish uh, context and says the same thing happened to them, but he adds the element of the law. They died to sin. They died to the law and were raised with Christ morally through faith, through baptism, that kind of thing. So now he's bringing it back to the idea of being saved from the wrath of death and what the future hope is. So we pick up in chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We don't, and he's talking to the Jews there, we have no obligation to that realm of law, flesh, sin, all that. For if you live according to the flesh, if according to the flesh you live, you are about to die. I mentioned this yesterday, but let me say it again. We're all about to die. We know that. And that's what he said in chapter 5. Because of Adam's sin, you're all going to die. And those who are circumcised and live according to the law and put themselves in that mindset, in that, in that realm, rather, of the law and the flesh, they're going to die because the law condemns them to death. But if by the Spirit, the deeds of the body you put to death, you will live. Death is not the end of the story. And here he brings the Spirit back in. Right? That same Spirit that in chapter 5 was the means through which God's love was poured into you and you persevere through tribulations. Now it comes back and comes back to that idea and says, if the Spirit is in you, and how do you know if the Spirit's in you? Well, you are killing sin. You're putting to death the deeds of the body. If that's true, that even though you're about to die, you will live. Resurrection. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What do sons of God do? They die and then they rise again. You see that? When we join to Christ, morally, we die to the realm and enslavement of master sin and we rise again to master righteousness so that we live the rest of this life not enslaved to sin, but in resurrection, moral life by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. But eventually the body is going to die and it's going to rise again because we are sons of God. That's what God's sons do. For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again for fear. That's not the spirit. But you received the spirit of adoption in which we cry, Abba, Father. Remember who first cried, Abba, Father? Our Lord Jesus. That's what he referred to the Father as, Abba. It's a term of endearment. Well, we are sons of God if by the Spirit of God we're putting to death deeds of the body. 
And that's the spirit we've received. We're adopted. We cry out just like Jesus did, Abba, Father, because that's what sons of God do. This one, the spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children also heirs. Heirs indeed of God, and in the Greek here, I wish they would translate this way. On the one hand, we are heirs of God. On the other hand, heirs together of Christ. So if the Spirit indwells you, then you are a child of God. If you are a child of God, you are an heir of God. That's, we, we, we don't have, I don't know, inheritance is not a big deal today, at least in Western culture. Are you planning to leave your children a great inheritance? I am actually. I want to. I'm pursuing that. I, want, I, I think we should get back to that idea. Not because I see it as um, a clear New Testament teaching that's required of all men. It's not that kind of thing. But I, in the larger picture of the scripture, I, I think it's a concept that, that is good, if not required. So we can talk about that some other time. But in the scripture, the idea of inheritance is a really big deal. Well, Jesus is the heir of everything. Right? God has given his son Jesus, the Messiah, everything as his inheritance. The nations, Psalm 2, are his inheritance. God's sons inherit the world. Well, if you are filled with the Spirit or led by the Spirit or dwelt by the Spirit, you are... God's heir. Now, he's talked about this already, hasn't he? Uh, remember chapter 4? Uh, verse 14, For not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his seed of his being heir of the world, but through the righteousness of faith. God promised Abraham and his seed the world. For if they who are of law are heirs, faith has been made void and the promise has been made useless for the law works wrath. But it's not. It's through faith, according to grace, that the promise being sure to all the seed, that he may be the father of us all. We are heirs of the promises made to Abraham, ultimately applied to Christ, and the fact that we are children of God in Christ, we are co-heirs with him. If we are children, we are also heirs of God and heirs together of Christ. Now, just think about that before we go on. What has God promised to his son? The world. Well, we are his son also. The world is ours. Child of Elohim. Think about her title there. 
child of Elohim. Elohim is one of the Hebrew words for God. As a child of God, we inherit everything Jesus inherits. We are heirs of God and heirs together of Christ. Not Christ being the inheritance. That's the, the Greek is pretty clear. That's, that's what it sounds like in English here. No, it's receiving from God as heirs and receiving along with Christ, the Messiah, everything that has been promised to him. If, indeed, we suffer together with the Messiah, that we may also be glorified together. Suffering is... Sorry, there's a there's a woodpecker outside chopping on my uh, on my porch, and I want to get up and shoo him away so he doesn't damage my porch. But I'll wait till we're done. <laughs> the suffering here, I think, is death. It seems to fit the context. It's the suffering that Jesus went through, and it fits the broader. This is why I went back to chapter five. It fits the the broader flow. We're still going to die. The body is dead because of sin. That's what, he, that's what he said a few verses ago. The body is dead, but the spirit will give it life. Jesus, the son of God, suffered death. And then God raised him up. The same is going to be true for the rest of God's sons. We are going to suffer with Christ. That is, we are going to die as he died. That we may be also glorified together. In the same way that Jesus was glorified. He rose from the dead, the hope of the glory of God. For I reckon that the sufferings of the present time. Again, I think this is talking about death are not worthy to be compared with the glory about to be revealed in us. For the earnest looking out of the creation expects the revelation of the sons of God. Isn't that interesting? He's, he's personifying creation here and saying crea creation has this, this searching, this earnest looking for something the creation, the world is looking and expecting for God's sons to be revealed. As the spirit continues to, uh, to, to, to work in the lives of men and, and women to make them sons of God. And creation is looking and expecting and watching and waiting kind of thing for to vanity was the creation made subject. Creation, what we call nature, the world, was made subject, made in submission to vanity. Well, what's vanity? It, it's not vanity like the, uh, the pop star who's so vain, look at me, look at me. It's not that. It's uselessness. It's futility. It's it's uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's the, the idea of a mist. It's, it, it, it's there for a moment, a breath that's there for a moment, and then it evaporates, it's gone. And it, it doesn't 
accomplish anything. For to vanity was the creation made subject, not of its own will. Creation didn't choose to become futile, but because of him who subjected it. That's Here's capital H. I think they're right. The translators, I think it's God. God subjected creation to futility in hope. So the question is when, and it, it, Paul doesn't say, but what makes most sense to me is this is appealing back to Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and God caused the uh, thistles and thorns to rise up and says, now you're still going to work, Adam. I created you to work. You're still going to work, but it's going to be hard work. And childbirth is going to be hard work and painful. And those seem to be, and there's going to be hostility between man and animals, as well as between man and Satan. And all of the, the things, the decay, the corruption, second law of thermodynamics, we would call it atrophy, that all seems to be part of creations being subjected to futility that God subjected creation to in hope, he says, that also the creation itself will be set free from the servitude of the corruption to the liberty of the glory of the children of God. So when God's children achieve the glory of God, so also creation will be set free from its corruption into this freedom, this liberty. He says, for we have known that all creation groans together and travails in pain together until now. It's this imagery of a woman in childbirth. And she's in labor and wanting so desperately to give birth to this wonderful child that she's been carrying. But at the moment, there's no child, at least no born child. It's just the pain and suffering. But one day the baby's going to be born. This is the imagery Paul's using to talk about creation as it waits for the revelation of the sons of God. So what I think he's saying is that just like Adam's sin brought death and futility to the world, so this is all going to be reversed and one day humans are going to rise again and occupy an earth that is free from all the corruption and decay and futility. I think it's what we have to look forward to. Nothing here about heaven, <clears throat> but what we might call a new earth. All right, I saw a couple comments in passing here. Um... Some of you are talking about wind chimes and woodpeckers. That's good. Uh, Jed says, what about the suffering from the Jews in the flesh? Um, what about the suffering from the Jews in the flesh? I'm not sure what you mean there. You say, why differ from five? Because both passages seem parallel. 
Uh, I agree there's some parallel there. Uh, so, but I'm, I'm trying to, trying to, uh, so you think the, oh, do you think chapter eight here is about 70 AD? Is that what you're getting at? Before I comment further, see if you'll, see if you answer that. Uh, that may be the case with chapter five tribulations, but here is a more profound meaning. Are you talking to me or someone else there, Rob? Um, tribulations in chapter five, I don't think is death. It's not the same word either. Uh, here, suffering is not the same word as tribulations. Uh, Rob, I, I can't tell if you're talking to me or talking to Jed. Uh, Martha says, justified, sanctified, then glorified. Yep, to use our familiar Christian theological terms. That's good, though. Edgar says, on earth, similar to before the fall or even better? Yes, similar and better. Uh, what if the groaning is related to the birth of a new nation, as in Galatians 4.27? Yeah, uh, I don't see it. Um, so if that's the case... Okay, so if that's the case, then he's talking, uh, we're children of God, so the we here would seem to be restricted. Well, no, I'm not going to go there. Okay, if children heirs, heirs indeed together of Christ, if we suffer with him. So if we suffer the persecution that is coming in 70 A.D., uh, what if we don't? Uh, Paul didn't uh, make it to the, to the other side. Right? Uh, Peter didn't make it through to the other side. So he, he didn't inherit anything. I reckon the sufferings of the present time, meaning we're about to be persecuted by the Romans... Not worthy to be compared with the glory that's about to reveal be revealed to in us. So if I'm understanding you correctly, if I'm understanding the view, Jed, then it would be uh, whoever is left after 70 AD is going to experience amazing glory. Not worthy to be compared. So, this, so those who are in Rome... Uh, uh, you know Nero, right? He he picks up his uh, his persecution on the Christians, and a lot of these people are going to die. But whoever makes it on the other side, when the Romans stop persecuting Christians, then what they went through is not going to be worthy to be compared to that, and. The uh, creation here would be that's earnestly looking is what? The creation, the Jew, the, what's this verse 19 here? What's the creation that's expecting what, and what was subjected to futility? And then the creation will be set free from the servitude to the corruption I don't I, see 
if this is talking about Jews or uh, or pre seventy A.D., then it would say they are not freed from slave slavery to corruption when Paul writes this. Do you see that? Also, the creation itself will be set free from the servitude of the corruption. Paul has just gone to great lengths to say that Gentiles and Jews in Christ have been set free. So who is enslaved here in verse 21? He says, we've known that all creation groans together and travails together until now. And yet he's just really tried to pound home that that's not true for the Christian except physically. So I, I don't see... Uh, I don't see how that fits here at all. And I, and I, I want to be, I'm not, I'm not trying to be uh, unkind to you. Uh, I'm just trying to get, see it because I, I have wrestled with that because if you've been following me at all, you know I, I see a lot of 70 AD in the New Testament, a lot of it. Uh, so much so that I make people uncomfortable sometimes. But I don't see it here. It doesn't make sense of the language or of chapter six and seven to me. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to stick with my interpretation unless you can show me uh, and answer the questions. Uh, wouldn't the manifestation of the sons of God only be after the resurrection and into the millennium when we know that wh- where's the mention of millennium here anywhere? I don't, I don't, I don't see anything about millennium. See, that's, this is what I'm trying to avoid is going and grabbing other passages just in the context here, there's no millennium. Uh, yes, I don't, I don't, that Revelation 20 is, is not going to inform my view so much here. Uh, is it possible they were expecting the resurrection to happen in 70 AD and they were surprised that it didn't? Who's they? I mean, Paul, was he surprised in heaven? I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I'll just tell you, my friend, I, I get it. I understand why someone wants to go there. I'm just going to tell you, as I have studied this uh, pretty thoroughly, because like I said, I'm a pretty high-octane preterist and, and 70 AD guy, um, it seems to me to make 70 AD fit, make this be about death of Israel and so on, is forcing forcing the view, which uh, I just don't want to do. But I'm open. Keep looking. If you have uh, other arguments, put them in and I'll take a look. All right. Uh, we're going to leave it there for now. I find this wonderfully hopeful. And it makes me look forward to what's coming. All right. We're going to wrap it there. Uh, guys, we've got Fridays with the fellows tomorrow. We'll talk about uh, manhood, wisdom, and especially some political things. So hope to see you then. And we'll see the rest of you on Monday. Take care.